With a challenging truth and a frank confession, here's Pastor Ed Ray. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is difficult to understand. That there is one God, three persons in it. And if I was setting this thing up, thank God I'm not, that if I had set this up, I would have made Christianity a little easier to grasp. But it's not built for us to grasp, it's built for us to believe because that's the reality of who God is. Zion, now filled with hands, and in this place God will dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son, selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love, and harmony. Thank God we need only to believe Him and not to have to fully understand Him to be saved. Yet it's a sticking point for some. But as it's been well said, if God were small enough to grasp, He wouldn't be big enough to worship. And we should expect God to be God. That means He is able to take care of us. Yes, it's a comforting truth as we face many uncertainties. Well, hello and welcome to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We continue in Paul's first letter to Timothy. And in chapter 3, we come to a song that was sung, a creed that was spoken that embodies some foundational truths about our great God. Beginning by reading our scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 3, picking up in verse 14, Here's Pastor Ed. Paul writes, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God or the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. God was displayed, manifested in the flesh. So this is actually, we believe, a hymn that was sung in the first century church. So I have a friend that's a pastor in a denominational church in the Midwest. He sent this to me. Don't think it's real, but he claims it is. There's a church that had a, a pastor and a minister of music that were not getting along. And, and pretty soon it started to break out in the way that the choir director was choosing the songs after the pastor preached. So the first time the pastor preached on commitment and how we should all dedicate ourselves to the service of God, the music director led the song, I Shall Not Be Moved. <laughs> Second week, the pastor preached on tithing and the director led the song, Jesus Paid It All. Third week, he preached on gossiping, and the music director led the song, I Love to Tell the Story. <laughs> so with all this going on, there, the argument breaks out, and the pastor becomes disgusted, and he tells the church that he's considering leaving, and the music director led the song, Oh, Why Not Tonight? So finally, the next week, he actually did come and tell the church that he was leaving, that Jesus had led him there, and that now Jesus was taking him to another church, and the director saying, what a friend we have in Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Music. In the church, there's a lot of variation depending on the particular church you go to. Even here in our city, a lot of differences. 
particularly in the styles of music, we tend to like modern Christian music, but we also try and do hymns too because the theology is so great and they really lift us up. Some churches do things in different order. Some people have choirs, some have organs, and, and just different ways of doing music. And when you go around the world, you'll see that the Church of Jesus Christ doesn't have a, a set way to do a worship service, but the music is what varies from city to city. I was in Nigeria a while back, and the music there were the same songs that we sing, but definitely a different beat, and they could clap on the beat, so it was great worship. Nepal, completely different style of music. The chords sound strange to our ears. With some Iranian pastors several years ago and, and definitely had a Middle Eastern flavor to the songs. So all that to say, the song service has changed through the years, but every time we get to something like this, I, I wonder what the church service was like in the first century. Now Paul is giving us a scripture that in the Greek language is very metered. It's obviously a poem, but also it was sung as a hymn. And you wonder about what the song sounded like, which of course we don't have any recording, so there's no way to know. So I want, that makes you think about the whole service. How did they sit? What was the order of service? So what did it sound like? What lyrics were popular? We have some of those songs in the Greek language, so. We have a little bit of an idea, but no idea exactly what it sounded like sung or played. But this scripture is really well known in the first century. It's recorded many other places besides in the Bible. So we believe that Paul is writing something that the church was already using. Not only is it a hymn and a poem, it was a creed, something that they would pray together, they would declare, because it's the foundational truths of who Jesus is, the foundational picture of the gospel and what it accomplished. So Paul includes it here for Timothy, and we'll see it, it impacts the city that Timothy is in considerably. Okay, so if you're just joining us, the letter written to Timothy, a young pastor in Ephesus, which is kind of the western shore of Turkey today, Asia Minor, then the capital of Asia Minor. A beautiful city, kind of like San Diego, uh, only with a combination of Las Vegas, because it was a very decadent city, but very beautiful setting. So Paul has left this young pastor there, and God is moving in this city. A lot of things have happened there. Now, the city is famous for its temple to the god of, of sex. Her name is Diana or Artemis. And so that temple is one of the seven wonders of the world, and it fits into what Paul is preaching here or teaching to this young man. So it's fundamentally a hymn, a creed, a poem about Jesus Christ and who he was and his impact on the world. And of course, we can see that as clearly 2,000 years later as it was then, maybe even more clearly now because more books have been written about him and theology than any other subject. That's just the reality of the Library of Congress. Uh, more songs have been written around his theme than any other theme. Uh, poems, dramas, he has made an impact like no other person ever on the planet. And so we're getting a chance to 
really look at things that probably we've heard in a thousand different ways if, you're, if you've been in church all your life, or maybe, as has happened the last two services last night and this morning, you're here and you're an agnostic or you're an atheist, and we're glad you're here. And this is an opportunity to see what Scripture says about who this most fantastic person that ever was on earth and how he impacted the world. So we will look at it, just break it down, try and get into it a little quicker. It breaks up into three parts. The song or the poem actually has six different phrases or three couplets. First couplet, incarnation. That's not a word we use very often, but it means God in the flesh, a vindication, approved, tested and proved of righteousness. Observation number two, seen by angels and men, proclaimed by people. Number three, acceptation, accepted by the world, and ascension raised up in heaven. So that's where we're going. Let's jump in. So Paul says, these things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. I'm writing you about things that were impacting the church there. Now, they're mostly Greeks who did not have any background in a monotheistic uh, relationship with God. And so he spends the first half of this chapter uh, talking about what leaders should be like and both leaders and servers. And as you go through the list, it's kind of convicting because it's all about character traits and nothing about skill. It doesn't talk about capabilities with the exception of teaching. Everything else is about the character of the person that's leading, whether it's a Sunday school class, a woman's ministry, a men's ministry, any part of serving in the church. And God is looking on the heart, and that's what he's telling us we're supposed to look at. So, no scripture tells us for sure where Paul was when he wrote this, but it would appear from Macedonia. And we also are told by an early church historian that that's where he was arrested in northern Greece the second time. And so this may be, we don't know the time frame between First Timothy, the one we're studying, and the next one we come to, Second Timothy, but we're suspicious uh, that they're very close together and Paul was arrested right after he wrote this letter. And then, of course, would die in Rome, beheaded, verse 15. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, emphasis on living, the pillar and the ground or foundation of the truth. So, Paul is saying, if I'm delayed, if I'm held back, then here's some things that you need to apply to the church in the city that has this temple. Okay, so this ancient temple was one of the seven wonders of the world, as I said, because of the way it was constructed. It was a beautiful marble temple, too, but it was built in a swamp, and they reclaimed the swamp. Roman engineers came in and built up a foundation of animal skins, hives, soaked in pitch, in asphalt, and they stacked them up, and then they poured concrete around them and underwater and the Romans had that capacity, calcium carbonate thrown in to make it go off, or you don't need to know that. The point was that the concrete is still standing today, 2,000 years later. That's the foundation Paul is talking about here, the ground or the foundation. Only these truths he's going to say are the foundation and the pillars. Okay, Temple of Diana, 
127 pillars. If you go with us to Ephesus in the spring, you'll get an opportunity to see this temple. The pillars, some of them have been restored. 60 foot tall, six stories tall, and each one of the 127 of them given as a gift from a king in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, they were very clever politically. They would defeat a people, and then they'd put a puppet king underneath them so that the people thought they were still being ruled by uh, someone of their own tribe, tongue, etc. So 127 kings donate these pillars. Paul is saying, what I'm about ready to write to you in the next verse is the foundation and the pillar of Christianity, the things that hold the building up, the building being the church of the living God. Living because God is alive. He is the God of the living, and God himself is living. God lives in real time. You're listening to Grow in Grace with Pastor Ed Ray. We're covering 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now with part 2 of today's lesson, picking up in verse 15, with more on our living God and his involvement in our world, once again, Here's Pastor Ed. He's not dispassionately the watchmaker that wound up the watch and let it go, the watch being the universe, the cosmos, that he, in fact, is actively engaged in it. Not that he causes everything that happened, but if you pray and ask in Jesus' name, God promises he will do something. He changes the course of history. Prayer changes things. That's what Scripture teaches. I don't care what your theology is or what theologian you're following. We try and just follow what Scripture says. Scripture says things are different when we pray because God is living. He is alive and involved. So, that's the setup, the illustration, the figure for the church. Now, here's what the church believes. Verse 16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by the angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So, Paul gives us these six pillars with an explanation and introduction of how important these verses are. Another translation, modern translation, without question, this is the great mystery of our faith. Christ appeared in the flesh and was shown to be righteous by the things he did in the Spirit. He was seen by angels. He was announced to the nations, believed on throughout the world, and taken up into heaven. So that's where we're going. Those are the six foundational truths. He begins by saying, without controversy. Now, it's a strange word. It's the only time it appears in Scripture. It is one long Greek word, without controversy great. Homo lugadios gosmos. I knew you'd want to know that. But the word it comes from, we've actually talked about a lot. It's the word homo lugeo. We talk about it because it's one of the great truths of Scripture that we are faithful to confess our sin, homo lugeo. God is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Because Jesus took on the penalty for our sins, all we need to do is agree with God that that was sin. That's literally what homo lugeo means. Homo, the same, homogenized milk, all the same. Lugeo, to speak something, a statement, 
Say the same thing God says and it's done. Your sins are forgiven and forgotten. Amen. amen. I'm glad I got an amen. We're not a Pentecostal church, but you know, every once in a while, we ought to go break out of our little shell and say, yes, that's a, that's a good thing. So, undeniable, without a question, this great controversy is actually something that's set in stone. Great is the mystery of godliness. Okay, so mystery is that Greek word that's worthy of stopping a moment on, mysterion, that indicates something hidden, particularly in the Old Testament age, that's now understood, revealed in the New Testament. It also means it's a mystery to those who have not surrendered to God, even to this day, but plain, obvious, to anyone who does. It's something supernatural that God opens the eyes of our heart. We we sing that song around here. That it's a description of something that happens to every believer who surrenders to him, whether you call it converted or born again or whatever works for you, that impact with God that moves us into a relationship with him where actually God comes into our lives. He takes up residence in us. So the mystery, this thing that was hidden and still remains hidden to the unbeliever is something that can only be known by surrender. Now, if you're here and not surrendered to God, it will be difficult to see these things, but it's still truth, and logic will lead you to Jesus, at least faith in Jesus. So I read of this uh, college professor this week who is teaching, he's a philosopher, but a believer, which is sometimes not together, but he's a professor of philosophy in a uh, school in New York, and he was teaching a humanities class at the university, and uh, it's required for freshmen, and which means they'd study Greek philosophy and everything up. And the, when he gets to the New Testament, which was part of the curriculum, one of the students, the freshman, said, for me to believe in God, I have to have a God that I can understand. The professor smiled as he said, God refuses to be that small which I think is probably the best answer I've ever heard, that's truth, it's not sarcastic, but what the professor is saying is that if you could understand God, he would not be capable of running the world and the universe, your life and everybody else's life around us. Jesus is capable of doing that because we do not fully understand him. He said that through Isaiah the prophet, and uh, it's in 55 verse 8, my thoughts are not as your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts are higher than yours. So God is not being arrogant or saying he, he doesn't want us to know him, just the opposite. It's just that our little peanut brains cannot hold the great truths about who he is and what he is capable of doing. It's not a put off, it's not a push away, it's a come. And when we see him, we will be like him and we will know as he is known, but that does not mean that we will grasp everything of how he keeps protons and neutrons living together in the same shell in chemistry. Uh, If you didn't understand what I said, it does not matter at all. Okay, sorry, my brain just thinks that way. Mm. Okay, godliness, the mystery of literally goodliness, and which is not really a 
English term, but if we could translate it, that would be the closest, the mystery of the goodliness. Another translator said, it is the word balance, or probably even closer, wholeness. The mystery of becoming whole. We like to say, I need to get it all together. I got to get my life all together. I want it all balanced. I want it whole. That wholeness comes by a surrender to God. That's where Paul is going with this, that this goodliness, this wholeness is part of this mystery. This mystery of God, great is the mystery of godliness, is also a play on words for the people who received this letter, Timothy first and then the church. I told you about Artemis, this temple. If you go to Acts chapter 19, verse 28, you'll find that all the people of Ephesus are upset because the gold and silversmiths who make little goddesses of Artemis were running out of business. People weren't buying their little idols any longer. And so they start a riot, and they go into the theater of Ephesus, which you can visit, go sit in today, and they started screaming, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Paul says, not so much. Great is God Almighty, this mystery of God. So it's pillar fit for these who are listening. Now, Paul tells us that the secret is, in fact, Jesus himself. That sounds too simple, Pastor. Well, listen to the way he said it to the Colossians. First chapter to the Colossians, verse 26. And uh, Colossae was uh, a one-day walk from Ephesus. He said, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to the believers, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of his glory of this mystery, the riches of what this mystery really means among the Gentiles, the nations, which is, wait for it, Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery that has been revealed that Paul has written down for us this poem, this understanding. Okay, so that's where we're going. We have these three couplets that are tied together. All that to get to this, all right? First of all, the in incarnation, right? We're in Southern California, so you know this Latin word, incarnation. Incarni asada. <laughs> See? You speak Latin already, just like that, same in Spanish, all right? In the flesh. So, the first couplet, God was manifested or displayed or portrayed in the flesh. Okay, Jesus is deity. That's what this is saying. Jesus is God. Now, the doctrine of the Trinity is difficult to understand, that there is one God, three persons in it. And if I was setting this thing up, thank God I'm not, that if I had set this up, I would have made Christianity a little easier to grasp. But it's not built for us to grasp, it's built for us to believe because that's the reality of who God is. So we start with the most difficult concept that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, left heaven and was displayed in flesh. The word the isn't actually there in the Greek language. The definite article is not there. So it's in flesh. God in flesh. Profound truths about our Savior, Pastor Ed has presented to us from the Scriptures, for us to believe and receive, not to fully grasp, but to believe them. 
Doing so will bring great comfort. And this is Grow in Grace. We're traveling through 1 Timothy with Pastor Ed. Get today's study on CD by calling us toll-free at 844-77-GRACE. That's 844-77-GRACE. You can also listen to the program online at thepackinghouse.org. Again, we're at thepackinghouse.org. We don't like to make a big deal about it, but we are listener-supported ministry. And if God is calling you to take part in the ministry through a financial gift, we'd like to say thanks by sending you Power Through Prayer by E.M. Bounds. Maybe prayer to you is just something you do without much thought before a meal or just another thing to cross off your to-do list. There's great power through prayer, and this book will help to elevate your thinking about it to see how it truly makes a difference. This guidebook provides believers with information about the most effective ways to use prayer to better understand God's Word, to fully appreciate divine power, and more deeply commune with God. Again, that's your gift of any amount to grow in grace. You can call 844-77-GRACE. We are always touched when we hear about what God is doing through this radio ministry. If you're growing in grace as you study alongside us, would you mind shooting us an email today? Our email address is packinghouseradio at aol.com. Then join us back here next time for Grow in Grace as we return to 1 Timothy. Zion, now filled with hands and in this place gotta dwell with man. Sick be healed and the crippled stand singing hallelujah. My kingdom built with the blood of my son. Selfless sacrifice for everyone. Faith, hope, love and harmony. I said let this world know me by your